Welcome to the In Awe Podcast, where we amplify women by sharing their unique stories and empower a community through the mission and their message. I am your host, Sarah Johnson, a former school teacher and principal turned author and entrepreneur, living my own leap of faith on a mission to teach masses. Each week, we will feature stories from women who will leave us all in awe of their impact on our world. Welcome to March in the world of the In Awe Podcast, my friends. We come in like a lioness in this month and firmly plant there throughout, featuring strong voices who inspire us to advocate and lead with great purpose. I love the word March itself because it conjures up strength and forward movement, and I'm seriously enamored with the stories that I'll be amplifying for you this month. Our kickoff guest was deeply intentional, recorded months ago, and has been burning a hole in my podcast pocket ever since we talked. You are going to love this woman and her message. Brianna Hodges is committed to helping educators reframe perspectives to positively transform the story of school. Pulling from her experience as a marketing and PR executive turned English classroom teacher and basketball coach turned district administrator and nationally known educational consultant and speaker, Brianna shares how story serves as the foundation of learning, the cornerstone of culture, and the catalyst to transformation with classrooms, districts, conferences, and stages across the nation. She holds a bachelor's in English literature and a master's in curriculum and instruction with specialization in instructional design and technology. She has learned, listened, and led in classrooms and in central administration since 2000. At the district level, she served as Director of Digital Learning and Director of Learning Experiences and Engagement, specializing in instructional coaching, purposeful pedagogy, transformative implementation, and engaged learning for all ages and stages. Noted for her innovative approach to learning, Brie was named K-12 Administrator to Watch in 2018 and Texas EdTech of the Year 2017. She serves as National Advisor for Future Ready Schools and Spokesperson for Future Ready Coaches. Brie is widely recognized for her superpower in storytelling, capacity for connection, and commitment to empathy and equity. When Brianna isn't leading a session diving into strategy, learning, and vlogging about education happenings or waiting to board an airplane, you can find her pacing the sidelines of her son's games, encouraging her daughter's affinity for slime and YouTube, wrangling longhorns and horses at her family farm, or finding moments of laughter and connection with family and friends. I am sure you can all understand why I absolutely adore this woman. In this episode, we literally cover so much, my friends. We learn about Bree's dynamic professional background and her fueled passion for storytelling, and she and I boldly step together into a conversation around several topics that are hot around the concept of women in leadership. I love this conversation with Brianna learning about her upbringing and the model that her parents were to her to foster such a strong leadership example and how she is intentional about building the same in her own family as well as modeling that for all of us. The conversation is multifaceted and charged with passion. It's the absolute perfect kickoff to this series, and I am ecstatic to bring to you Brianna Hodges' leadership story. Welcome, Brianna Hodges, to the In Awe Podcast. I am so thrilled to have you on this series feature on leadership. I know our listeners are just going to be so inspired by this conversation today. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am super excited as well to to be a part of this. So I feel kind of like that longtime listener, first time caller, excited to to get to, to join in on this podcast. So here we go. Long overdue, but I know that there's a mission in your message and I know that the timing is absolutely what it needs to be. So would you do me a favor? It would be completely shocking if my listeners did not know who you were, but would you be willing to share a little bit about the current context and what you're up to in your corner of the world, Brianna? Sure. So I am, um, I actually just this last year um, launched out into full-time consulting. And so uh, I always talk about um, my job is kind of like the grandparent job, if you will. So I have um, spent the last uh, 
about the last eight years in um, district administration, working with uh, specifically around um, professional learning um, and implementation of innovation, and how can we actually take these, you know, these devices, these, you know, pedagogical strategies, all of those different things that we are working around. Um, when it comes to instruction and actually getting that um, in place. And so instead of just buying the things and then um, starting off our, our, our year saying, this is going to be the year that we're really going to do this, you know, how do we really successfully look at innovative um, implementation? And so I, I've been really fortunate to, to get to do that work. And I love it. And the reason why I call it the grandparent is because I get to still come into classrooms. I still get to, um, you know, go in, on, onto campuses and into districts and I get to see all of those things and see the excitement and, and get everything um, all, all up and going. Um, but I don't have to do the grades. And so I get to leave it behind and then, you know, move into the next piece. And so I'm super excited about that. Um, for the last few years, I've been um, involved with Future Ready Schools Advisor and Spokesperson for Future Ready Coaches. Just been super awesome and great to, to get to experience all of those things and, and learn and lift other people up as far as what it is that they're doing in their, in their neck of the woods. I love first of all, the grandparent job. That is so awesome. And I hadn't ever thought of it that way. And as you know, we have some similar, you know, backgrounds, except I'm not part of the same world that you are, but close in regard to launching out of classrooms and buildings and, and all of that. And it's just so cool for that analogy. It's so perfect. And it's nice because I always hear that grandparents just love those, those babies just as much, you know, so it it just kind of positively ties that because I know that you love who you work with, you know, that care is always there. So even though you say you get to leave that, you know, kind of hard stuff behind, there's challenge certainly in the work you do, but uh, also joy and love in it too. So that's really cool to see you kind of being able to live in your passion. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I also want to share too, I mean, you didn't get a chance to fit this in, in this lovely span of a career that you've had so far, um, is that we're soul sisters as we're English teachers too, correct? Yes. So we are definitely good people, you know, um, my English peeps out there. So my, my undergrad is actually in literature and anybody who knows me knows that I am absolutely obsessed with all things literature. Um, I refer to Shakespeare's Billy Shakes and, you know, the great EAP, otherwise known as Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> and I am just, uh, you know, Harper Lee. I mean, I, I could just go on and on and on and on. And uh, I always joke with my superintendents um, that if I, you know, my perfect world, I would still get to have a class where I could um, could walk through uh, literature with with my students. So um, even as a secondary, I, I taught mostly um, eighth grade, but um, also some seventh grade and some some uh, high school. But my most favorite thing to do, even with eighth graders, was to um, read out loud these novels and and you know really discuss them and and have these great conversations because um, you know our stories whether they're written stories or they're spoken stories or they are recounts and anecdotes of our days that's how we connect and that's how we um, 
truly move forward, which is basically what we're trying to do in education. That's how we learn. And a lot of times people will give me a hard time because they're like, well, that's just you as an English teacher. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's actually just, I think, me as a human being. And I think that all of us are are born storytellers and and story consumers. And so how we connect and and bring that together is is what happens when we um, when we learn. And so, uh, yes, we're, we're, I'm sure you can probably see, I just get super excited about that. I just love this wonderful juxtaposition of the, um, Billy Shakes. So you're like William Shakespeare, all about that. Uh, but you're also this innovative leader who is bringing the world of education, you know, into the now and into the future, which is really cool because those, those stories are universal. And we know that there's connections between the way our brains are wired for story. So, I think you're right on. Of course, I'm a little biased, but (laughs) I love that connection of story. And I also think that you use that. Is that correct? That part of the message that you speak to now is storytelling. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Absolutely. So without getting too far into the weeds, because I could absolutely talk brain science on this all day long, but, um, you know, just in, in, speaking, you know, continuing the conversation around Shakespeare. So Shakespeare was, you know, he, he, he didn't, write about a future. He didn't really write about a past, but contemporary reporter of what was happening in, in the world. And he leveraged um, the power of narrative and the power of, of figurative language, if you will, to, to really create attention around specific social issues and educational issues. And it's the same thing that we all do um, in the classroom. And that's how we do things. Uh, you know, whether whatever your profession is, um, you are explaining information to other people and you're getting attention um, in the way that you create, you craft that statement. So whether you're, you know, again, whether you're saying it out loud or whether you're writing it, if it's an email or if it's a text, when you're exchanging information, you're trying to drag people's attention to that concept. And we do that through story and, um, and our brains hold on to that. And, and so, um, story sometimes I think gets, uh, a little bit of a bad rap. It gets this idea of once upon a time or, you know, fairy tales or made up things. Um, but that's actually not really it. Every single thing that we do, uh, is a story and it's how our brain processes the information. And so, um, I think that, you know, we, the most important piece that comes along with that is what is the content of the story that we're trying to explain. And so, um, you know, one of the things that's also near and dear to my heart, and I know we're going to talk a lot about this later on is, is equity and how can we, you know, create equity within our environments and within our classrooms and within our, our culture as a whole. And, um, for me, that stems down to how can we, elevate the stories that are there. You know, if we have story, if we have voice and we, every one of us has a voice, every one of us has a story. It's when we get it out there in the open that, um, other people can hear those. And then we can, through neural coupling, start to understand what other people are experiencing and we can all come together in that way. So, um, love, love, love talking about that and, you know, how important that is both in the classroom, it's in the boardroom, it's in our courtrooms, every, every situation that we have is, is, you know, creating that opportunity for us to share our ideas, connect with our ideas, and then remember our ideas. Oh, you are speaking my language. I love it. (laughs) I love amplifying stories, obviously. And I love that you, you know, you're so clearly passionate about it. You're knowledgeable, um, but it comes from a longstanding, um, 
life of focus in this area. And I think we would be remiss if I didn't also share, uh, get you to share a little bit about um, your previous life, even before education, because I heard you reference, uh, you know, the stories that come in the courtrooms and and you kind of led to that a little bit. But being on the series on leadership, I just think about how much you've led your ship over the years and how it's kind of led you into different spaces. So do you want to share with the listeners what you did before you got into education? Sure. So I am, it's, it's not stuff that I talk a lot about because people always have lots of questions about it. And it's, it's one of those don't ask, don't tell kind of things, right? But I, am, <laughs> I so I started out um, in politics and did a lot of work um, specifically around campaigns and um, fundraising and lobbying and what all that means. And so uh, the reason why I say that, uh, so I, I usually will also tell people, yes, if you've seen any type of political um, television show or, or anything like that, there are absolutely measures of truth in each and everything that you see. And so, uh, so that said, it was really, that was my first taste of how does story um, impact what we know about people and then how important, once we know something about that, then how does that change our minds about things? And so once we know more about a candidate, then we're more... Um, apt to believe them or we're more apt to not believe them, right? So how does that idea and identity of trust and credibility and, um, you know, what does that play? Dr. Paul Zach has, of course, some amazing, amazing work on, um, on the role of oxytocin and our, and our morality and how much we'll give money um, for, uh, you know, from an economic standpoint, how much we will, will tie our money to what we trust and what we don't trust. And so uh, that was, it was really great. Um, I got uh, some incredible experiences. I will say that I started when you're 18 years old and you're working in national politics, it's definitely uh, very eye-opening. Um, certainly being the youngest person in there and working with some incredible people. I'm very fortunate for that. I also got to learn about how we craft um how we craft our story to, to make sure that we get those pieces to come across and how those motivate things. But um, I had to kind of leave the politics for a little bit to, to, to cleanse my heart, to cleanse my soul a little bit and um, moved into nonprofit work and, and did um, very much the same thing. A lot of marketing and, and fundraising for, uh, for nonprofits. And, um, and then that moved into executive work for, for hospitals, for major healthcare and um, hospitals and uh, you know being the director of PR and marketing for those organizations, it's it's interesting because you start, again, seeing that thread of story just come all the way through. People don't typically line up to go to hospitals. That's not a place that you, you usually want to go. And it's very stressful whenever you're going and you have these really complex, incredibly scary terms. Um, yet we've got that, that in, in such a high stress environment. And so how can we make this more comfortable, more palatable? Well, we do that through interviews and through, you know, um, infographics and through animations. And we start to get the, the information across in a story form, in a palatable opportunity for people to, to better understand that. And, um, you know, oftentimes we do that through microsites on websites. So, um, you know, whenever I transitioned into the classroom, I used those same skills um, to explain those scary things like Shakespeare and, um, you know, argumentation and things like that. Because again, all we're doing is we're taking that information and we're bringing it into a palatable environment. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a, a long, um, a long sorted history, but, uh, there's a lot of thread of, um, continuity 
through it as well. Well, and that's what I love that you continue to do is weave that thread of continuity through it. So anybody that accuses you of it just being an English teacher thing there, you know, they've only got a segment of your story and now we have a lot <laughs> of it on the podcast, which I love. You, you got it all. <laughs> I love it. And that's why I love having you here because you are such a strong and powerful, capable, trustworthy, confident voice for us. And I just really appreciate that you that you are out there leading and that you are out there um, speaking and paving ways and showing uh, really what a strong, intelligent, capable woman can do in this world. And so I want to thank you for that. And I also think that it would be fun to kind of get into that conversation a little bit about women and leadership because, um, you know, it's definitely an uh, area of passion of mine. And I've spoken a lot on the NA podcast about the stats and um, what I would say is an underrepresentation of women in leadership. So would you you like to go down that path with me, Brianna? I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Let's do it. All right. So I, I know for me, I whenever we have this conversation, speaking in terms of the education, I think you have some insights in regard to maybe a misconception in terms of parity or equity as it relates to women in leadership. So what would you say if somebody said, oh, no, 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 it's it's equal? <laughs> Like you said, we've definitely talked about this. Um, I think that that so many times people, if you were to put a pink or a blue on education, most people would definitely say, oh, that's what women do, right? I mean, we, we've talked about for, for generations, those were your choices. You were a teacher, you were a nurse. Those were, that's what women, you know, that's the roles that they went into. Um, and I think that, that to the point that's often true, um, you know, and, and I've, I've shared this conversation with several of our friends with, um, that with our peers, with our colleagues, especially that are men, um, you know, you see, Women most often are especially in elementary and then they move, um, you know, that those numbers are, are really strong, uh, strong there for, for that classroom experience. Um, you start to have, I kind of call them the unicorns, which are the, I don't kind of, I do call them the unicorns, which is um, a lot of our men who start out um, in t- teaching elementary. And so then most often they're the ones that some, most of the time they're the only men on their campus or things like that. And so people immediately go, oh my gosh, they're, they're a man teacher. It's kind of like being a male nurse, right? I saw that a lot in the hospital as well. And that's how we often describe them. Um, and so uh-huh. people gravitate toward them and, and I'm not despairing anything that, that they, um, you know, their, their opportunities or their, you know, their prowess and, in in their abilities, any of that stuff, but, but they start to be seen as something other that, that unicorn status of, wow, look at them, look at them go. And, um, and so then whenever you transition into leadership and you start looking at even, you know, principalship and, and director levels, you start to see that shift and you start to see more men are um, represented there than, than women are. And that just continues to go up and up. You know, if you move from principals into superintendency, we know those numbers. Um, I think we're finally up now to, what is it, 13% of, of, um, of, of superintendents nationwide are women. Um, that's up. A little bit for we, we used to be at seven, but is that enough, you know, and, and how long has it taken for us to get there? And, you know, what are we, where are we moving? And those numbers, when you start adding in color on top of that, it's even, you know, even more disparate. And so how do we start to see that truly start to see it? And, and why I mean, say, say, see it, how do we see it and acknowledge that there's some changes that need to be made in order for that to happen? And, um, you know, I think that that one of the other pieces that I, I 
I'm sure we could definitely talk about on and on is at that director level, even looking at what the titles are for the directors. And so that, um, you know, who is it that if you're the direct, if you're a female and you're in leadership, you're most likely a director of curriculum or you're a director of professional learning, right? And so then how do we keep those things, again, moving forward? Where do we get to those assistant superintendents of, you know, of, of organizations? How do we move into really bring in some and level that, that situation a little bit better? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I am extremely passionate about this topic and um, spend a lot of time researching it, even just in the last year. And so I heard you toss out 13%. And I know it depends on probably what study you look at and across the nation. I've been seeing more of a quarter, like a 25%. And actually that starting to show up in national political platforms too, right? Like we're almost, you know, we're almost up to a quarter percent of representation, but I love how you pointed Mm -hmm. out that's mostly white women. Let's look at how we are focusing on women of all of color, you know, and in my neck of the woods, I don't know what it's like for you in your space, but like in our region, there's three superintendents that are female. um, And that means 7%. So I always share that, you know, I've had really great conversations with women leaders across the nation and they're like, oh, no, no, we, you know, we're 50% women. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm excited for you. That's a different context than I live in, you know? Um, And it really does inform how we see this matter depending on what we're looking at. Well, and I think the thing that's really um, interesting too is because when you start to press the conversation, so things that I will often hear is, well, we hired what we, we hired based upon the pool that we had. Or, you know, based Mm -hmm. upon the opportunity that came into it. And so you get that notion of the scarcity of the table and who starts to come in. And um, it's so very interesting because when you, some of of the conversations will go, well, not enough women applied for it or not enough women of color or not enough people of color applied for this position. And so we went with what we had. And, And so then the question becomes, well, did you seek them out? Did you ask them? Did you invite them to come in? Were you surprised when they didn't apply? You know, I mean, I know that for me, in my positions um, at the district level, I was always, whenever I was hiring, I was always reaching out to people that I, you know, that I wanted to see in those positions and said, Hey, do you know that Mm -hmm. I have this position available or, Hey, we're getting ready to post this. Is this something that you've thought of? Or, you know, are you having those conversations? Um, not just when a position posts, but at you know, during yearly um, meetings, or hopefully more so than just yearly meetings of, of what are your interest points and where are you wanting to go, and then helping amplify those skills and those um, you know those traits within people to let them know you have what it takes and you have what we want to see in this role. Let's get there. And and I say that because in Melinda Gates, uh, The Moment of Lift, I don't know if you've read that yet. Um, It's phenomenal. I love that book. One of the things that that really stood out in my mind um, was uh, this idea of applying for positions. And um, I often get called a perfectionist. Admitting it is the first stage, right? So I think that that's important. But um, and, And we can have a whole side conversation on this too, because I think that that her conversation that she has around perfectionism within women, I think is so very, very important Um, because she talks about whenever there's a a job application, you know, women will turn and look to the qualifications, the list of requirements, and we make a decision 
as to whether or not we're going to apply for that based upon that, right? And so we look at those bullet points and how many do we think that we have to have in order to apply for it? Well, the majority of women will say 100%. We have to, because it's the requirements. That's what we are supposed to have in order to apply for it. If you ask the men, it's anywhere from 30 to 60% because they just look at them as suggestions Mm -hmm. and they feel like that's, the idea of the role and that during the interview process, it's up to, to the, the individual, to the, to that person to then showcase why they would be a good fit for that. And so, um, I say that because we have this perfectionist tendency that if we don't have a hundred percent of it, we won't even put our name in the hat and we won't put our name in the hat because we don't know, because what we're often told is that, well, you didn't have enough of X. And if you didn't have enough of X, then, that means you weren't qualified. And so mm-hmm. we internalize that, then decide that we're going to be perfect at it. And then we, you know, find ourselves in this continual um, situation. Uh, and, and it's just such a challenge, um, challenging point, I think. Yeah. I mean, so really what you've done, Brianna, is get pretty deep in this conversation of mm-hmm. this idea that um, I want to give the subtitle to Melinda Gates's book and I'll link it in the show notes for anybody that's interested. It's the moment of lift, how empowering women changes the world. And truly it really is, um, a really great read and a good thought process. And it reminds me to go back to something you said, which was when you were hiring, you weren't just waiting, you know, you didn't open up the gate and just wait to see who came. Part of leadership is building others, right? And I think some people listening and anybody who's been in the process of hiring, you know, we get so caught up in the HR processes and we, you know, like this equal opportunity employment makes you feel like, well, you, you can't go out and recruit, but you, you can. And in fact, we should, right? Mm-hmm. And because we don't want to be discriminatory on the other end, I think this, this conversation get, can get a little complicated, but for people who are listening and you have um, the ability to empower more than women, you know, right. But have a diverse culture in your organization is so good and so effective and important because we can't dismantle systems if we're not willing to first acknowledge and then challenge, right? Absolutely. And I think I think it's really, you know, so if I put my my teacher hat back on, right? Or we had the conversations mm-hmm. that we often have um, when we're talking about students is we want for them to see the possibilities and the cape and 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 that they are capable of, right? We want them to see all of these things. We want them to have this global connectivity. We want them to know, like I I personally am from a small town. I want my students to know that they have more than just what this town, you know, you don't have, you're not limited. You're not going to, you don't have to bloom where you're planted, right? Like you don't have to stay here all the time. You, there's other things that are out there. If you have an interest point that takes you beyond our city limits, let's do that. Let's get you where you think you can go and, and, and all of those things. And so through technology, we have definitely created opportunities for our students to see what those things are. Well, we need to do the same thing for, our taller Hmm. students for our adults, right? Like you only, if you, so often we only know what it is that we're exposed to. And if you have never seen a, a female superintendent, do you believe that you could be a superintendent as, as a, as a, maybe you're an, been in the classroom for five, 10, 15 years. And you're thinking, gosh, I really want to, to, extend my reach and I want to move, um, stay in education yet move into a different role. 
is being a superintendent even rolling around in your mind um, if you've never seen a female superintendent in that position, right? So I, I think that that's, that's our, I, I, I love that you said that, like, how do we help create that situation for people to see what they, what they're capable of, what those choices are and opportunities. Yeah, so true. And I love because so many of my faithful listeners of the in podcast are both men and women. And I know that this conversation is not always easy, but I just think it's so critical to open up. You talked about um, in education that, I mean, it is 80% female and that um, is more and more coming into play. And I, the, the studying that I've been doing lately is the idea of how educators are paid and this kind of the, I can't remember which study it was, but I could link it in the show notes uh, at another point, but just this idea that the pay um, in education is a concern, but it's also this feminization of the, of the field. And we know that there's a pay gap. We have an 80% um, pay gap in the United States. And so we just continue to feel like this is everybody's issue, men or women, um, to try to get some more gender parity and to have the teaching profession be seen as a viable, important profession in society. It's not just tied to the gender issue, but there's something there to be seen as well. And in leadership specifically, I think it's critical that, you know, we do have uh, a a wide range of of voices and images. And I love so much this idea about representation being important. So thank you for tying that because we want our children to see themselves doing anything. You know, I love uh, so much about like, was it, um, have you seen Hidden Figures yet? Yes. Yes. It's not just the education profession, right? But women are smart. They've been smart forever. Um, We just need to, as a society, learn how to value those intelligences, right? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, to, to kind of touch back on the on the pay issue as well, we all know you don't get into education for, for the pay. Um, but we also know that the the higher you go into leadership, the more you're financially compensated for that work. Um, you know, in, in most in most states and in most organizations, um, our our teachers are kind of locked into very specific um, pay steps that they can take. And that opens up whenever you move into administration, you know, for the, for the majority of our states, we have administrative um, pay scales and we have teacher pay scales. And so if, if we are having 80% of our women in education, if they're in the classroom and yet we have you know, the majority of our men at the upper end of that, we're still not getting to that, um, that opportunity to really kind of grow that and, or, 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 or um, I guess bridge that gap even more. So um, again, it is it's it's all connected in there. And how can we how can we keep bringing it forward? Like you were saying, so absolutely conversations in action. You're a rock star. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just geeked out for a little bit, but it's good. It's good. Um, so we may not have all the solutions, but we'll continue to have these <laughs> conversations and you know prompting any listeners. Um, I, I think to one more conversation I'd like to get to before we walk away from it is I think it's important to acknowledge that we all have societal norms that restrict us. And I really value that you talked about you know men feeling being like a unicorn um, in the elementary world of education, as well as the the fact that we tag on male nurses. And it's not fair to men to be societally stigmatized because of their profession as well, right? And their gender roles. So I think it's good that you brought that up. But I also want to point out one of the I don't know if it's like an aha moment or a smack in the face or something like that, but I read mm-hmm. um, Anne-Marie Slaughter's Unfinished Business this last year, and it really gave me a wider ranging idea about this idea of how work impacts the family dynamic. And 
one of the quotes that I really cling to with her uh, comment is that balance really is, it's less of an equity issue as a societal issue because it's a stigma around caregiving. And so whether a man or a woman wants to be the primary or the anchor parent, mm-hmm. um, our society actually stigmatizes based upon gender. You know, men are pushed to work hard, work, 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 while women, like I'm a third wave feminist, right? So I grew up thinking I can have it all. I can have a brain and a push-up bra. Is that, that's a quote from that, right? Like that's a quote from that um, ideology. But the fact is that's a big lie that we're sold because if we want to be good in caregiving to our um, children and care growing, really, then we have to be able to give up something. Otherwise, we're on this rat race. And if we have two, if we're lucky enough, um, you know, to have two breadwinners and caregivers in the home, um, it's great. But the conversations need to be around the fact that there's going to be a sacrifice in one area. And we just have to be willing to acknowledge that. And part of that huge society thing is if women aren't, for example, becoming superintendents, is it because of a societal stigma and a policy issue at that level for a lack of flexibility? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, a gender normed situation in the home with caregiving, you know, is the is the primary parent still the female? Um, Is that female still doing, as globally tells us, two thirds of the non paid work, this second shift work, like all the cleaning and cooking and all of that? It might that might be a part of why uh, listeners here that might be resonating with you, why it's just it's challenging to do it all and to be it all. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, oh, oh, you've definitely, we could talk on this for a really long time. Um, <laughs> one of the, so, so one of the things that, that a lot of people um, don't know about me is that I, I was raised in a very interesting situation. So my, um, my mom worked um, in a, my mom worked in state government. My dad was a college professor. And um, my, uh, so we moved to, um, for lack of a better word, my hometown, uh, in 1985, whenever I was, uh, going in, going into first grade. And, um, so when I was going into the fifth grade and my mom worked in a different town that was an hour and 15 minutes away. And so mm-hmm. that meant that she left our house every morning about 5 AM. And then she would come home about seven thirty every a.m. you know, every, every night. And, um, <clears throat> um, and we, my dad, you know, took my brother and I to school and, and, and did all these kind of things. So fast forward to when I'm in the fifth grade and my mom um, receives a new opportunity to, to move into a different role. And it was going to have her move um, across the state. And so my mom um, moved to Houston and got an apartment and um, was there Sunday night until Friday morning and then came home with us. And my dad is who raised my brother and I here during the week as our primary um, caregiver. And my mom came back and forth on the weekends. And, um, as a fifth grader, when that was going on, uh, it was great for me because (laughs) I actually got to see my mom more than I did. I got to see my mom more when she was gone during the week and home on the weekend than when she was completely and utterly exhausted, um, from traveling back and forth. Right. And so I got to have this quality time instead of quantity time. Uh, that said, it was really, really interesting also as a fifth grader in a small town in Texas, because all the church ladies started coming over and wanting to, um, take me to lunch or bring me lunch at school and talk to me about how sad it was that my parents were getting divorced. And I remember (laughs) sitting down with my parents and saying, what is going on? And they were like, nothing is going on. We're not getting divorced. Everything it's fine. They just don't understand. And so, um, even to this day, 
I have people who will ask me, um, you know, that must have been sad for you. You must have felt so abandoned by your mom. And I still remember very clearly as a nine-year-old, you know, a 10-year-old kid thinking, wow, how awesome is it that my mom loves my dad enough for my dad to be able to be supported in his career. And my dad loves my mom enough for my mom to be supported in her career. And I, as a little girl, get to see what that is. I mean, my, my mom has her master's in environmental engineering. My dad has his PhD. You know, I mean, my, they, they, they went to school to make a difference in, in the world. And they, that doesn't stop when you have kids and, and they're still making their impact by showing me as a child that you can, you can go and do these things. So, um, you know, I, I think that has definitely played a part in who I am. Um, you know, I have two little kids myself. And so I get this question a lot, or I get this, I get this question and I get the look a lot of, <laughs> Oh, wow, you're traveling again. Who's taking care of your kids and, and, and those kind of things. And, um, I do think it's so, so, so important that we have those conversations and that we provide opportunity for us to, to, showcase what we want for our kids. That's so interesting. I love that backstory. It's amazing. And such Mm -hmm. a perfect example, really illustrating better than I could have ever thought that exact point. And I love too, because it's not like your, your dad gave up his professional goals to be able to be the anchor parent in your home. No, I just, I think that that's the, that's the, that's the crux of it is that no one's giving up anything. And, and I've had that conversation with so many people is that as a society, we look at a woman who, who is maybe traveling for her career and go, oh, she's giving up being a good, a good mom. But we never, ever, ever say that about uh, a man who's deployed for his job or who is a fireman and has gone, you know, gone 24 off for, you know, we never say that, that they've given up their, their dedication to their family. Yet we say that about women. And, um, and, and I don't think that that's, I don't think that's fair. You know, I don't, I, and I, I certainly don't think that it's, I'm not saying that to say we should say that about men as well. I, I don't think that that's what you're doing. You're, you're, we're providing our, um, we're providing for our families and we're showing them, you know, I mean, I want my little girl to know she can do anything that she wants to. And that through technology and through our society, she can do that from wherever she is and she can travel and she can, um, you know, put her heart out there into the world in the way that she, she best wants to. And I want my son to know that about himself. And I also want him to know that he needs to be, um, that he should do that for, for any female that's in his life as well, that she gets to have that chance too. And it shouldn't be a choice of, you know, mom, mom's going to do this, but dad, but dad's not right. So it's so good too. And I think, I think like you said, we could do like a, a series, like part one and part two on this whole topic. <laughs> sure. Cause sure. you're just, you're making me think a lot about too, you know, we don't want to make assumptions either in our conversation that men don't want to um, maybe even slow down their mm-hmm. trajectories a little bit to be a little more mindful in that parenting space. Cause we have to admit that our children at their ages and stages need something different from us. 
you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I I speak to so many moms who, man, like recently I had a conversation with one who just regrets that she wasn't a little slower in those first several months, you know, with the baby. It's like she was push, push, pushing. And, and I think that's because again, our society makes us feel as women that, um, you know, we won't be able to gain in our careers if we do slow down. So this conversation is just really complex. (laughs) I think it has so many different layers more Mm -hmm. than I would have ever thought even a year or two ago. And I think it just comes down to Mm -hmm. in reality and for the listeners, you know, we could sit here and peel apart this conversation all day long. But I think what it comes down to is understanding that there are societal norms that restrict every single one of us and that we can be a part of changing them, (laughs) you know, um, through our conversations, through living the life that you're living right now, Mm -hmm. Brianna, just being the model, you know, you're out there keynote speeding, speaking, you are a representative of a strong female voice. And that should uh, continue. And I'm excited to amplify you in this series to make sure that we do see more than just one visual for what a leader looks like in that space, you know? So I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you, this passionate conversation, which I think we're going to have to have again at some point. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you. You know, I think, I think for me, the biggest piece of it is that we all have our stories, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and if we, we have our stories and together we're going to make more stories. And I think that that is what is so important um, for any element of, of life, you know, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's teaching, whether it's learning, whether it's, uh, you know, applying and actually doing, um, you know, having those stories, sharing those stories. And having a willingness to listen to to those stories and then share them and, and get them out there is so, so, so important. So thank you for giving me some time to, to share mine and to learn more of yours. And together, we're going to keep making this beautiful, wonderful world an even more beautiful, wonderful place. That's right. Okay. Before we head out, um, I want to make sure, Brianna, that I get um, two standard questions answered from you from this Mm -hmm. podcast, because I, speaking of story, I know that you've got something probably really good for us to hear. So if you could write a letter to yourself at any age or stage, what would you say? Can I change this just a little bit and it not be a letter to me? But so here's why I'm going to say this. My dad always wrote letters to, and uh, especially whenever I had had a hard time or we'd had a a disagreement or any of that kind of thing. And so my dad, my dad was very sage, um, rough and tumbly, you know, six, five Marlboro man, cowboy, but, um, was very, very eloquent and is honestly where my love of literature came from. But he, he shared this advice with me whenever I was leaving politics and was going, trying to decide where my next step was going to be. And I wish, so I, I got this advice when I was almost, uh, it was my mid twenties and I wish that I had gotten it earlier. So that's, that's where this is coming from. And that advice was, Money is like closet space. You use what you have and you wish you always had more. And I think that that you could sub out money for anything because I think that we always wish that we had more of what we have, but we (laughs) need to utilize and leverage the things that we have, which doesn't mean that we don't want more. It just means that we shouldn't stop doing what we're doing, complain that we don't have enough. Let's just use what we have and be innovative in the ways that we have it and and leverage it 
to get where we want. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that and regifting that wisdom with us. All right. So this is the series on leadership and you've got a strong, powerful voice. So I know this one's going to matter for our listeners. It, as an influential woman, if I have a listener out there that's just kind of finding themselves in a pit of fear or doubt, what do you think you could say to them to help launch them up out of their own pit? I do not like the word balance. Um, and, and I'm going to say the reason why I don't <laughs> like the word balance is because most often it drums up the visualization that things have to be equal. And if they're not equal, then they're out of balance somehow, mm-hmm. some, some, in some capacity. And nobody wants to be out of balance. And so what I do like is the word center. And um, I was a, a, a dancer. I was a basketball player. I, you know, done a lot of road horses, all kinds of different things and centered being centered is very, very important in all of that. And the reason why I say that is because centered doesn't mean that you are perfect in what you are doing. What it means is that you can take the hits and yet you still can find yourself coming back upright. You can, you know, be very um, strong at your center point and yet take whatever, you know, blows and, and stumbles and, and, um, trips and, and any of those things, those, those winds that blow your way, whether they blow you forward or they blow you backward, you still have that center point. And so I think that that is what is, is very important, um, for me, uh, as I have continued to grow and age and, and learn, um, throughout my time is knowing that my why becomes my center point and it's going to be, um, there's, you're going to have some changes in your whys along the way, but let that why be your center and don't let it be your reason to not let it be your reason to do and, um, and be okay to, to, to bounce back however you need to. Mm, I love that. Such good wisdom. Um, I love that you tied it back to all those different facets of your life. And just so you know, and the listeners know, I don't like the word balance either though. Uh, cause you know, the book that I wrote is called going beyond work life balance. <laughs> <laughs> that subtitle matters, right? Uh, because I think it is definitely a lie that we're told. So, uh, regardless of what age or stage we're in, uh, you know, that it's, I love that centering point is really important. It's something we should strive for basically our entire lives. Yes. yes. Um, so I love it. All right, Miss Brianna. Well, would you share with the listeners the best way to engage with you so that they can connect either with the message if they want to bring you into an organization or just uh, just connect on all the great wisdom that you shared today? Absolutely. Well, you can find me pretty much on any social media platform at bhodgesedu. And um, my website is BriannaHodges.com. So I look forward to, again, learning all the stories that our listeners have out there, your listeners have out there, and how we can um, connect and and keep this beautiful world going, create our anthologies and and weave some some tapestry together. Awesome. Thank you so much for giving us this wonderful, inspiring interview today, Brianna. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I continue to be completely awe-inspired by every single guest on this podcast, and I am so grateful every time you choose to share, rate, review an episode. It matters so greatly to the mission and the message of our guests, and I appreciate every time you help one another rise by lifting up the message. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you being a part of this awe-inspiring community.